Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. It's cool and overcast today in Los Angeles, and what you're about to hear is a talk I gave yesterday in Irvine, California at Northwoods High School. Um, Susie McDuffie, uh, the teacher and friend, invited me to speak to her comparative religions class on Buddhism. So I made my way down to Irvine and gave this presentation. Hope you find it interesting. Hope you find it useful. Uh, it's been a while since I posted the last podcast, but I've been busy, busy, busy. I was in Berkeley a week or so ago at a conference, and next week I'll be in Sacramento at another conference. So I've been traveling more than usual, and uh, but I'll try to get up to speed with the next podcast and have it for you soon. So, my talk at Northwoods High School in Irvine, California, Basic Buddhism to a Comparative Religions class. So how much have you studied so far? Have you Basic Buddhism? The basics, okay. Do you know the story of the Buddha? Kind of. Four Noble Truths? Yeah. Eightfold Path? Yep. Two kinds of meditation? Samatha Vipassana? No. no. Yoga. Yoga. Okay, cool. Okay, well, that gives me some uh, a starting we're point then. Almost done with the chapter. Almost done with the chapter on Buddhism? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, we're putting it together. Cool. I'll, I'll sort of wrap it up for you then. Wrap it up and get it going and okay. all of that. Thank okay. Well, I'm, I'm happy to be here. It's, a, it's sort of a long ride, but I get to do carpooling, so it makes it a little bit easier until I get to the entrance of your school, and then there's like more people than on the freeway. It's amazing. So let me tell you why I think the Buddha was a cool guy. Did anybody see 300 yet? Yeah. Okay. Wasn't that a cool movie? Yeah. You know? And, and, and the thing I liked about that was it really, you know, if you're a guy, it really made you feel like a guy. You know, it just, and now, if you're a woman, you probably want to go have some Spartan children. But, um, but the guys in there were just like, okay, we're going to do one thing. We're going to die in battle. That's our glory. And their whole life was trained. You know, they were trained to die in battle because they were the warrior caste. And, and then I thought about the Buddha, and the Buddha came from the warrior caste as well. He was a warrior, you know? And yet, he changed his perspective a smidge, didn't he? So rather than fighting the war on the outside, he fought the war on the inside. He realized Mara and Mara's armies were the ones that he needed to fight. Anybody read about Mara yet? The Great Tempter? Okay, cool. Okay, but no, I understand. Well, I'm, I'm just going to remind them then. I'm going to remind them. Okay, so the thing about the Buddha that's different from all other religions is that he was a religious guy. He believed in the gods of India, but he also realized there was one thing that the gods of India couldn't do, and that was end human suffering. And I bet you, if you believe in God today, and you prayed to God and said, God, please end human suffering, I don't know if he or she would. It seems we've been suffering ever since there have been humans on the earth. And the historical Buddha, Siddhartha, woke up to that. He went into the streets of the city, the best story, you know, and he saw these four things. He saw the old guy, the sick guy, the dead guy. The holy guy. Remember that story? He's in the streets. And and he really hadn't seen that many sick people before. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how can he not see sick people? And, and then I thought about my life. And I don't see a lot of sick people because those sick people, if they have health insurance, are in the hospitals. So we don't really have to look at them very much or even help them very much. And then how about really old people? You know, he didn't see a whole lot of old people. And sometimes we don't see a whole lot of old people either because we put them in rest homes so we don't have to look at them. And then when people die, what do we do with them? 
Well, but before we bury them under the ground, we comb their hair, and we put some makeup on their face, and we buy them some new clothes and shoes like they're going someplace, right? And, and so we sort of hide from the realities of our life in the same way the Buddha's parents tried to hide him from the realities of his life. But then he saw this, this yoga guy, this yogi, this mendicant, this ascetic, this spiritual person all dressed in white. And that changed his view because he realized at some level that that was the answer. That was the answer to the difficulties of life, a spiritual path. And people in India even today are very spiritual. They have more religions there than I think any other country. And they had them back then too. So at the age of 29, the Buddha finally had his first child, named him Rahula. Anybody know what Rahula means? Rahula means fetter or impediment. So here's a guy that had his first kid and is calling his kid a fetter or impediment. Huh? But what that message is, is that if you have a family, you're going to be attached to them. You're going to want to protect them. You're going to want to serve them. And, and the Buddha realized that. So on the very night his child is born, it said he left his wife and child in the care of his parents. And then he went to the edge of the forest and he took off all his clothes and picked up these old dirty rags that were lying next to his feet and covered his naked body. He cut off his hair. He took all his princely jewelry and just threw it away. And for six years, he practiced renunciation, asceticism, yoga, meditation. He wanted to see where suffering came from because he was going to end it. I think at one point in his life, he prayed to the gods of India, saying, please, step forward and end the suffering. And not one of them did. So he said, well, I'm going to see if I can do it myself. I'm going to see if it's possible for a human being to end suffering. And that was the beginning of his journey. And those six years turned out to be the practice I'm going deeper and deeper into suffering. He gave up everything that made him feel comfortable. He gave up his family. He gave up his position in society. He gave up his clothes. He gave up lying down at night to sleep. He would sleep sitting in full lotus posture. He gave up having really good food and a lot of it. He would eat one meal a day. He was doing things that most of us would say, why would anybody want to do that? But he was giving all the things that prevented him from seeing his suffering. He was throwing those away, pushing those aside. And he suffered a lot. He almost died at one point, as you know, in the story of the Buddha. And, and yet, for some reason, he continued and he continued. And at the end of six years, he was so frustrated because he was almost there. And he couldn't figure out how to get that last 1%. And so he made a vow. I'm going to either do it or die. One of the two. And he sat beneath this tree. And we all know the tree later became called the Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment. And he did it. He figured it out. He figured out how not to suffer ever again. He figured out how to end his karma. And he figured out how not to be reborn ever again. What an amazing feat. Now, for 49 days, he just enjoyed himself. He was free. He was more free than any of us can imagine. And he was enjoying that freedom. And yet, when he looked back into the world and he saw everybody else still suffering, he said, maybe some of these people can understand what I did. Maybe some of these people will be able to hear my message. And for 45 years, he went into the world, and he taught why we suffer and how to end that suffering. And at the age of 80 years old, he died, never to be reborn again. Do you have a question? Well, during the 45 years that he taught, would he be considered as a bodhisattva? No. Good question. Okay, let me, let me put, during those 45 years that he taught, would he be considered a bodhisattva? Is that what you're, okay. Absolutely not. Now, let me clarify this for you. The Buddha was a bodhisattva 
for at least 550 lifetimes, according to the Jataka tales, which is found in the early Buddhist canon of the Theravada, those early Indian Buddhists. There are stories of the Buddha when he was a bodhisattva. So finally, after 550 lifetimes, at least, as a bodhisattva, he was reborn as Siddhartha. And then, in that lifetime, instead of becoming a bodhisattva, he became a Buddha. All those years of practice, all those lifetimes of practice, manifested into being a Buddha. Okay, some, some people become Buddhas after they die. That's called parinirvana. That's nirvana after death. But there is a possibility to achieve nirvana while you're still alive. And that's what the Buddha did. And the reason we call him the Buddha is because he didn't have a teacher. He figured it out himself. Yes? Are all other Buddhas reincarnations of the Siddhartha or can... Or can it be from multiple people? Okay, cool. All are uh, Buddha's incarnations of Siddhartha. Actually, according to the early Buddhist tradition, Siddhartha was the 28th Buddha. So there were 27 different Buddhas before him. And we already know who the 29th Buddha is going to be, and his name is Maitreya. And he's in heaven right now. And he'll be reborn on earth when the last person who knows Buddhism dies. And then there'll be nobody on earth that knows Buddhism, and he'll be reborn and rediscover the path and start to teach again. Yeah? How will you know who it is? Pardon? How will you know who it is? Because we're the only one on earth. How will we know uh, that that it's him? Yeah, Yeah, that's a really good question. And I guess we probably won't because we'll be dead. (laughs) But um, there's a guy right now in England who says he is Maitreya. And and he's probably one of the only people that thinks he is. so it's like the teachings are still valid. So, so right now there's, there's no Maitreya. And when he's reborn, um, he will have to rediscover it, and then he'll have to teach it. And I suppose if we were back in India, we might recognize the fact that the Buddha was alive 2,500 years ago. One of the stories is when the Buddha had just achieved his nirvana, and he's walking down this path, And the first human being to ever see the new Buddha approaches him. And he says, hi, I'm the fully perfected one. I'm the enlightened one. I'm the Buddha. And you know what the guy said? Maybe so. And he just kept walking. And so the Buddha figured he'd have to change his his spiel a little bit. Because it wasn't working just to go up and say, I'm the Buddha. So if I, and I live in downtown Los Angeles in Koreatown. So can you imagine me walking down the street and say, hey, I'm the Buddha? <laughs> and they would go, yeah, sure, and they just keep walking. And so, so the thing that the Buddha decided to do was teach. He said, it really doesn't matter if people think I'm the Buddha or not, because by being the Buddha, it's not going to change their life. I can't make them perfect. I can't end their suffering. I can only tell them how I ended my suffering. And that's when he gave his very first talk. It's called the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta. Easy for me to say. And that means the turning of the wheel talk. And in that talk, he said, I have discovered four truths. And those truths are even true today. And the first truth he discovered was that life sucks. It's really hard to be a human being. Because we're born. And because we're born, we have to get sick, we have to get old, and we have to die. And if that's not bad enough, everything we like and really want to have in our life, like those iPods, fifth generation, they're going to be taken away from us. And you know who's going to take it away? Impermanence and change will take it away. One day you won't be able to find it. One day it'll be broken. One day it'll be stolen. Life works like that. And then he went on to say, you know, there are a lot of people in this world that are very uncomfortable to be around. And there are a lot of places we don't want to be in. And if you're around those people and in those places, you're going to suffer. That was his first truth. He said life is ultimately unsatisfactory. Now, he didn't say it was always unsatisfactory. He said there are moments in our life when it's really fun. 
and we're really happy to be alive and really happy to be human beings. But the problem with those moments, they change. They don't last long enough. They never stay the same. First truth, yes? I had a question about the reincarnation of the Buddha. Reincarnation of the Buddha. No, 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 the, the person who's coming in after all the people. Okay. How long do you think that would take? Like, what time? Like, when will the next Buddha appear on Earth? Yes. When the last person who knows Buddhism dies. Yeah, because we're working really hard, and now there's like uh, iPods and Dharma talks on that, podcasts. And you go into any major bookstore, and there's tons of books on Buddhism. Is that bad? That's good. Because that means more and more people will know about Buddhism, and it'll take longer for it to die. But don't you want the new Buddha to come back? Uh, Well, actually, no, because the teachings of the last Buddha still work. So the most important thing are the teachings, not the Buddha. Isn't that interesting? Like, like you know, do, do, when when people think of Christ, do they think Christ is more important than the teachings? No. Really? Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe so. Because what was Christ? Christ was the Son of God, wasn't he? So it was really cool to have the Son of God on earth. But, like, the Buddha was just a guy who figured out how to end suffering. And his message, the teachings, are the most important part of all of Buddhism. It's even more important than the Buddha. Yeah. Are you a Theravada? I'm sorry? Are you a Theravada? Am I a Theravada? Okay, let me tell you what I am. That's a good question. Uh, I'm ordained in the Vietnamese Zen tradition, so my ordination is Mahayana. But my teacher, my teacher came from Sri Lanka, and I studied with him for like 16 years. So when I talk about Buddhism, I talk about it in a Theravada way. So for, for, for Christians, I tell them I dress like a Protestant and think like a Catholic. And that's the difference between Theravada and Mahayana. Because like my understanding was that in Mahayana, there is still like some sort of God, or like at least the idealized Buddha. Okay. And then in Theravada... Like, I, I thought Buddhism didn't really have a body. Okay, so. that's a good... Okay, so, so now the question is sort of like, I thought in Mahayana that maybe they made Buddha into sort of a god figure, godhead, and yet in the Theravada, they didn't seem to believe in God at all, even though the Buddha believed in God, or no. gods. Uh, Was that sort of like what you were saying? Kind of, because I used to be Mahayana. You used to be Mahayana? Yeah. And what are you now? I'm Christian. Okay. <laughs> Cool. Um, but like when I was in Korea with my grandmother, we yeah. used to go to the temple all the time, and we had bodhisattva statues. Bodhisattvas, yeah. Right, and then the only like Buddha statue was actually inside the temple. Yep. And we used to like chant and like we like bow down to the statue. Mm-hmm. But like I don't know, that's that's what I thought it was. But like now that I'm studying Buddhism, yeah. it says that Buddhism doesn't really have a god. Right. So I'm kind of like. Okay, let me clarify that for you. So the last sentence was, maybe Buddhism doesn't really have a God. Okay, well, the Buddha believed in the gods of India, but he realized the gods of India couldn't end suffering. So Buddhism is about ending suffering. It's not about finding God. If you really want to have a relationship with God, be a Christian. Really, I mean, because they know how to do that. You ask a Buddhist how to have a relationship with God, they don't have a clue. Now, does that mean that Buddhists are atheists? Yeah. Well, you would think so, but the answer is absolutely not. Buddhists are non-theistic, not atheistic. That means they don't know. That means God is not important to a Buddhist, because God can't end suffering. So, are there Buddhists that believe in God? The answer is absolutely. I've met many Buddhists that believe in God. But it's not because of Buddhism. It's probably because of Christian missionaries. Or Hindus. Or Muslims. Or Jews. Or all the other religions that believe in God. Yes? I thought the definition of religion was that you worship some sort of higher power. Okay. That's one of the religions. Uh, okay, but let me finish this first, and then we'll get back to that. Remind me, though, okay? If I forget. 
Okay, so some Buddhists do believe in God, but not because of Buddhism. Some Buddhists don't believe in God. Some Buddhists are atheists, but not because of Buddhism. It's because of something they feel is real or not real. And then there are a lot of Buddhists who just don't know or care. They don't mind people believing in in God. It's not like believing in God is wrong. It's like believing in God won't end your suffering. And Buddhism is about ending suffering. And that's all Buddhism is about. Hmm. According to the Theravada. So, a lot of Buddhists in the Mahayana tradition, which is the reform movement, those are like the Protestants, okay, they said, you know, there isn't just this one Buddha guy who died. Buddha had three bodies, a trakaya. And, and one of the bodies was like the body on earth, and one of the bodies was like the body in heaven, and one of the bodies was like the universal power or energy thing. Does that sound sort of familiar? And it, then you go, wow, yeah. So the body on earth was just the body on earth. But that wasn't who the real Buddha was. Theravada says, no, come on, give me a break. The Buddha was a human being who found the answer to suffering and he died. And that's it. Nothing special about that, other than the fact he became a perfect human being. That's pretty special. But he never became godlike until the Mahayana. And I was so frustrated with that, because I like the idea about the Buddha just being a guy who died. Because I'm a guy who's going to die, and I could relate to that. So why did we have to resurrect the Buddha and put him into heaven? Because I think human beings don't want the good guys to go. Or women. They want them to be around for a while. And even if their body is dead, they can imagine, well, they're still alive someplace. They might be in heaven, and, and maybe if I go to heaven, I'll get to meet the Buddha. You know, because people want to do that. Humans like that idea. But the Theravada, were, they're, they're sort of down-to-earth and practical. They say, it just doesn't matter if you ever see the Buddha again. Practice his teachings, and you will be free. You will end your suffering. That's what Buddhism is about. One second. So, did that answer your question, Sona? Kind of, but I also thought that Buddha also said that there is a Godhead, that even if he doesn't have a personality or like, or, or something like, he, he's still like there, like the, the Godhead, like the spirit is still there. Okay. And that people eventually go back to that spirit. Yeah. Well, uh, according to the early Buddhist tradition, no, not at all. He never talked about God. People asked him. They said, hey, is there a God or isn't there a God? And he said nothing. And why? Because if he were to say there was a God, would that end human suffering? No. If he were to say there is no God, would that end human suffering? No. So he just didn't say anything. Same thing when people asked him how the world started. People always want to know how it started. What's the first cause? In Kansas, they're having a big legal argument. Well, is it creation? Is it evolution? What's real? What's important? Well, for a Buddhist, we don't care. (laughs) Because knowing how the world started will not end our suffering. It'll just give us more useless information to think about. Now, some Buddhists think God started the world. God was the first cause. I've talked to them. They feel that's the case. I've talked to other Buddhists who have said, no, no, it's the Big Bang Theory in evolution. That is so cool. Much more exciting to read about. And then I found a website that I think really has the answer. You know what the website is? The Flying Spaghetti Monster website. Yes, yes. If you do a Google search Flying Spaghetti Monster, he's the one that started the world. He was the first cause. And if you believe in the flying spaghetti monster, you get to wear a pirate's patch and call yourself a pirate. And they have t-shirts you can buy. And it's a very cool concept of how the world started. The concept is the flying spaghetti monster was the first cause. He started the world. Why is he called the flying spaghetti Because he's a flying spaghetti monster. You have to go to the website. to really. It, there's a picture of him right there. 
So can you see what I'm sort of getting at here? The, the, the fact is that all this stuff about God or creation or evolution is absolutely useless when it comes to ending your suffering. It's not going to make your day any better to know or not know. So the Buddha didn't say anything about that. Later commentators, l- later scholars, later monks and nuns may have wanted him to say that and may have put those words in his mouth, but according to the early Buddhist tradition, no, he didn't, never said anything about God, other than the fact that he believed in the gods. I mean, he wasn't an atheist, he was a very much a theist, but they were just lacking in some respects. Now, you had a question. Uh, yeah, I... Okay. It was religion, how... Like, oh, yes, okay. Most religions have said it's religion if there's a God at the head and people are praying or paying respect. But religion can also be defined as salvation. Does it lead to salvation? Not only does it lead to God, but does it lead to salvation? So according to that second definition, Buddhism would be a religion because it leads to salvation. It'll save you from suffering. That's the salvation we're trying to find. So in that category. Now, some people don't look at Buddhism as a religion. They look at it as a a philosophy. Some people look at Buddhism as a way of life. Some people look at Buddhism as a therapy. I was at UCLA last night for the Buddhist club and giving a talk to the Buddhist club there. And this guy comes up to me and says, I'm breaking up with my girlfriend. We've been together for six years and, and I really like her, but I think it's time for us just to break up, and, and I don't know how to do it. What would the Buddha say about that? <laughs> and I'm going, you know, I don't know. <laughs> this was last night at the Buddhist club at UCLA. Oh, wow. so, so some people want Buddhism to sort of have those kind of answers, too. And I don't know if Buddhism is the right place to go for relationship counseling. I think Buddhism is a good place to go if you want to be free. You know, so Buddhism is looked at in many different ways. My other question was, um, you know, you said he didn't give an answer to if they're God. Well, also, if it doesn't end human suffering, but then won't they still be confused? So how could they not be suffering if they're, they don't know, and like they're, they bother them that they don't know? Well, I think what he was doing is giving them permission to not know, to know, to believe in what they wanted to believe. I don't think he he was saying, no, you can't believe in God. He was saying, you know, whatever whatever makes you feel comfortable, but that won't end your suffering. So he was giving people permission, I think, by not saying it, not defining it. Because as soon as somebody defines something, you know, man, you're sort of stuck with it. Does that make sense, Soda? Okay. Yes, sir. Okay, that's a great, that's why I'm here. So let me go through, let me go through the other um, uh, three uh, truths, because the, because the last truth has the answer. Okay, now the second truth is the reason we suffer as human beings, and I'll get to your question, okay, is because we are selfish. We wake up in the morning and it's all about me. I want to look good today. I want to smell good today. We take a shower. We comb our hair. We want to feel comfortable in our car and listen to the radio station we want to listen to. You know, it's me, me, me. And so all day long, we're trying to push away the bad stuff and hold on to the good stuff. And Buddhism says you can't do it because you are born with original ignorance. You do not see the world the way it really is. Anybody see The Matrix with Neo? When he woke up, he finally saw the world the way it really was. What a cruddy world he lived in, huh? Because before that, remember when everybody was sleeping in The Matrix and they would walk around and have jobs and have cool clothes and eat steaks and stuff? And it turned out to all be a big illusion. Neil woke up and he was in this, uh, the Ebenezer, that sort of submarine-like thing, and he had to eat porridge now that tasted terrible, and his clothes weren't very cool, and man, that was real. And that one guy wanted to go back to sleep, remember him, you know? He was going to sell out and go back to sleep, because he didn't like the real world. He wanted to go back to dreaming. So, we are dreaming. 
we do not see the world the way it really is. That's why we can't make our life perfect. Third truth. Third truth is nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering. Nirvana is the end of karma. Nirvana is the end of all future rebirths. And I'll get to that. That's a very important concept. Fourth truth. The way to end suffering. Noble Eightfold Path. This is the way to end suffering. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Those eight path factors allow us as a Buddhist to achieve our perfection, to achieve our freedom. Now let me just go through those real quick. Because this is the answer. This is the whole ballgame right here. Those eight path factors can be put into three categories. Personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. In the first category, we have three path factors. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. The Buddha said there are four kinds of speech that always increase our suffering. They are false, malicious, harsh, and gossip or idle chatter. Those kinds of speech always increase our suffering. When I was a volunteer at Central Juvenile Hall, I was there for five years with a bunch of wonderful young people who were really unskillful and suffering a lot. I said, if you want to suffer less today, say to the staff here, please and thank you, and you will suffer less. And they'll be impressed. It can be as simple as saying the right words to start to end your suffering. You don't have to sit for a long time in meditation to end your suffering. You just need to be more skillful in what you say. Then we go into right action. There are three kinds of action that always increase suffering. Killing, stealing, sexual misconduct. Now, what's the problem with killing? It's really hard to be born. It is so hard to be born. How long was it before you were here? A really long time. And if you're a Christian, this is your first time. Welcome! You finally made it. If you're a Hindu, welcome back. Good to see you again. You know? Now, you're only here for 50 or 60 years, and then somebody kills you. And you may not have even gone to church enough to figure out how to go to heaven. Killing creates an awful lot of suffering. People say, well, how do I practice not killing? I say, start big. I say, tomorrow morning, when each and every one of you wake up, say to yourself, today, I'm not killing any human beings. And you walk out that door with confidence that you can do it. You can go through your whole day without killing one human being. And when you get really good at not killing human beings, then you wake up and say, today I'm not killing any lions or tigers or bears either. And you walk out that door with confidence. You can do it. And when you get really good at that, then you wake up and you say to yourself, today I'm not killing any mosquitoes, ants, cockroaches, or flies. That is so hard. Three o'clock in the morning, that mosquito's buzzing your ear. Don't you just want to whack that sucker out of existence and go back to sleep? Of course you do. But now you're practicing. You're practicing not to kill because you start to realize that each life is special because each life was born and it's so hard to be born. Even for a mosquito, it's hard to be born. And they're not here very long at all. Now we go into stealing. If you take stuff from people that they think they're own and they're just using, they will be really disappointed. You know, I used to have a, 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 a Opal Manta. It was flag blue. It was my first brand new car, 3700 bucks out the door. And I really liked that car. It was so cool. And I went in my car one day to go to work. And you know what happened? It didn't they, no, they had stolen my radio. Somebody took my radio. I just got the car. It was an AM FM cassette. Did you lock it? <laughs> I did lock it. And they got in anyway. And I was mad and I yelled at my car. I said, Car, who owns you? I'm making the payments. Don't I own you, car? And I listened carefully and my car said nothing back. And I realized I didn't really own my car at all. I was just using it until somebody wanted it more than I did. Man, 
And then I went and looked in the mirror and I said, hey, do I own me? Can I prevent me from getting old? Can I prevent me from getting sick? Can I prevent me from dying? I said, no, I don't even own myself. How could I own a car? But you know what? We think we all own stuff because every time we go out and buy something, they give us a receipt. And we go, wow, this is so cool. I own it now. Now I need to clean it and protect it, use it, and not abuse it. Okay. But do we really own stuff? I don't think so. But we think we do. And when we think we do and somebody takes it, we are disappointed. We get angry. We get confused. I had the receipt. It was mine. But it's gone now. And now we come to the, to the hardest one of all. Sexual misconduct. What is sexual misconduct in 2007? <laughs> it seems that everything is okay. Wow. You know, when I was uh, your age, only half the stuff you can do, I could do. And I felt guilty about that. But now it's like if you just find the right partner or the right sexual orientation, or the right pair of shoes, your life will be perfect. And so you're out there searching for that right guy or right gal. You've decided you're gay and it's important. You've decided you're heterosexual and it's important. You've decided you want to be celibate and it's important. So what is the truth behind all that? Well, according to Buddhism, sex is great. It is wonderful. It's the reason we're all here. Somebody asked me the other day, Kusla, why are you here? Well, I'm here because my parents had sex and I had karma. That's why I'm here. You know, if my parent hadn't had sex, I wouldn't be here today standing in front of you. So there's nothing wrong with sex. In Buddhism, the problem is desire for sex. Do you know that desire can never be satisfied? Do you know you can have sex a thousand times and one in a thousand and one? Do you know you can be a guy and 80 years old and people give you Viagra? Man, it is impossible to satisfy that desire. And that's what the problem is. So that's why Buddhist monks who are celibate are practicing to be enlightened, because when you're enlightened, when you achieve nirvana, it ends all desire. So you have no desire to have sex ever again. Now, you may think, oh, that doesn't sound like much. Well, that's it. Why would you want that? Well, actually, I think you could probably spend that time on other stuff and that money on other stuff and think how simple your life would be and think how free you would be not to have that kind of relationship but just to be friends with everyone and no one's special? Well, can you be into can you be intimate with someone without having sex with them? Yeah. And 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 do you feel more confident in that kind of relationship because there's no hidden agenda? You know, sometimes, you know, people say things just to have sex. But if you're not having sex with people and you're still in a really close relationship, you can share your heart. And it won't, you know, be used against you. So, you know, uh, I just got back from a conference in October. I went to Collegeville, Minnesota, which is where St. John's Abbey is. St. John's Abbey is a Benedictine monastery. It's been there for 150 years. And we had 15 Buddhist monks and 15 Catholic monks, and we came together for four days, and we talked about celibacy. And it was so much fun to be around all these old guys who weren't having sex. Because we learned so much from each other. One of the young monks, he was a Christian monk, sort of a good-looking guy, probably just in his late 20s, early 30s. He had broken up with his girlfriend, and within a year, he had ordained as a, as a Catholic monk. And that's a pretty drastic step. So I had to ask him, I said, what was your inspiration? Why did you decide to be a monk? He said, because God's a better kisser. 
Isn't that wonderful? God's a better kisser. So, now, women, I know, I know, it's just, you know how guys are sometimes. God's a better kisser. So my job was to give a talk on why Buddhist monks are celibate. And let me tell you what I said in just a couple sentences. Buddhist monks are celibate because they need to have a simple lifestyle. We live in an economy of generosity. We live on donations from other people. And in order to be supported, we need to have few things. We need, you know, we need medical, we need food, we need shelter, we need clothing, but we don't need much more than that. If we had a wife and if we had children, imagine me going in and giving a Dharma talk and then passing the plate around saying, hey, could you put a few more dollars in there? Because I want to take the wife to a movie tonight. It wouldn't work. The second reason Buddhist monks are celibate is because we want to be free. We want to be free. And you can't be free if you're having sex with someone. Because it's just too complicated. There's just too much desire going on. There's just too much drama and not enough dharma. Yes, you've been wanting to ask this question? I want to know how you became a Buddhist monk and when did you first hear about Buddhism? Okay. Okay, I'm just about there. So, it was a wonderful wonderful experience for me to hang out with the Catholics and and see how it is that men are celibate. And we talk about how not to have sex, which is something most guys don't talk about when they get together. And it is really cool. And we talk about being free. And we talk about having extra time to investigate who you are. Now, if in fact I've been born many, many lifetimes before, I've probably been a father and a grandfather. I could have been a wife. Because huh? yeah, I probably wasn't born in every lifetime as a guy. So I've done that already. And then there was this lifetime. And so why not make this lifetime a little different? Why not make this lifetime sort of special? And say, okay, I've already been a husband and a wife. And a t- How do you know your last lifetime? You didn't want to make it special? You don't. You don't. So it's a, it's a conscious choice if you're a Buddhist because that's part of the job description as a Buddhist monk, not to have sex. If you're a Buddhist layperson, you can have as much sex as you want, have as many children as you want. We're doing fine, thank you. We have plenty of Buddhists in the world. But the monks and nuns, for some reason in this lifetime, have chosen to simplify their life, have chosen to work on personal freedom, And in order to do that, they needed a little extra time to themselves. So they keep themselves out of those intimate relationships. Now, if you're a human being and if you want to have sex, in Bhikkhu Bodhi's book, The Eightfold Path, he says this about Buddhism. He says, don't have sex with people who are married because that causes a whole lot of suffering. Don't have sex with people who are engaged, that causes a whole lot of suffering. Don't have sex with children who are being supported by their parents, that causes a whole lot of suffering. And don't have sex with people against the will, that causes a lot of suffering. And that's pretty much what Buddhism says. So, there's a big thing about being gay these days. So what did the Buddha say about being gay? Absolutely nothing. As far as I'm concerned, it's just another way to suffer. (laughs) You know, you got heterosexuals are suffering, celibates are suffering, and gays are suffering. We're all suffering in our own special way. Yes, and I'll get to your... But do monks who are celibate ever really get rid of the desire to have sex? Only at nirvana. Only when you achieve nirvana. So you're always fighting that desire all the time. When I see Jennifer Lopez, wow. (laughs) But what do we do? Do we go out and find Jennifer Lopez and say, I want to have sex with you? Or I found Pamela Anderson. Well, yes. Well, sometimes you just sort of watch the desire arise. Because I know most of the times when we want to have sex, we're not going to be able to have sex. It just happens. All of a sudden, you're walking down the street and you want to have sex and there's nobody around. Okay, well, so what do you do? Well, you just sort of watch the desire there 
you sort of marvel at how strong it is and how the will of the universe to replicate itself, you know, over and over again. It's just an amazing energy. And then it goes away. You know, it always comes back, but it doesn't stay there forever. So it's that sort of thing, you know. You don't get rid of that desire, but you start to become aware of it and you start to work with it to try to understand yourself and how you relate to that. So it's an, in, it's, it's an interesting challenge, to say the least. Now, I'm going to get back to how to end suffering, but first I want to talk a little bit about how I became a Buddhist, and then we'll get back to that, okay? I became a Buddhist uh, in 1980. When I was born, I was born as a Lutheran, and my father was a very conservative Lutheran, and we went to church a lot when I was a young person. But then I went to high school. And I went to high school in the 60s, and in the 60s, it was very important to question all authority and not trust anyone over 30. So that's what I did. I said, okay, I I don't believe Nixon. I don't believe my religion. I don't believe anything anybody over 30 says to me, because they're all lying to me. I am going to be independent. I am going to be a nonconformist with the other 10 million people who want to be nonconformists. And then I turned 30. From 28 to 30, I was depressed for two years. I said, I'm getting old now. I'm joining the other side. I'm going to be one of them, and there's nothing I can do about it. And I said, people who are 30 die quickly. I'll be dead before 40. I had just watched a movie called Logan's Run, where they had this crystal planted in their palm, and everybody that turned 30, it glowed, and then they found you, and nobody ever saw you again, and the whole culture were under 30s, and I'm going, oh man, this is it. Well, I said to myself, if I'm going to die, I'm going to have a religion, and I went out and purchased Houston Smith's book, World Religions. And I read the chapter on Buddhism twice, and I said, that's the religion I'm going to be. And then I got another book, the phone book, and found a meditation center. And I started to meditate. So I wasn't divinely inspired. I didn't have some great insight into how important spirituality was. I was just getting old and wanted to die well. So far, I'm doing pretty good. I haven't died yet. So that's sort of cool. I've had a long time to practice. Now, did I want to become a Buddhist monk? No. Who wants to be celibate? I mean, you don't go in and say, oh, I can hardly wait to be celibate. At least I didn't. But, you know, as I practiced and studied and started to meditate, it started to change me a little bit. And then my teacher said, you know, Kusala, this is an opportunity that most Americans don't have. In the old days, Americans would have to go over to Asia to get ordained. But you can be ordained right here in America. And Kusala, I know you're working, but you don't have a career. Kusla, I know you have girlfriends, but you don't have a long-term relationship. Have you thought about being a monk? Have you thought about doing something you really want to do? Something you have passion for? Kusla, do you have, do you have courage enough to change your life? To make an intention to go in a new direction? Well, those words really struck home, and I started to think about that. And now I'm like 42, 44 years old, and I'm thinking to myself, Why not take a chance? Why not do something for the first time in my life that I really wanted to do? Instead of working just so I could have enough rent or make car payments, why not live a life that's filled with passion? You know? So I started to become a monk. I became a novice monk in 1994, and I became fully ordained in 1996. And and I didn't know what monks were supposed to do. You know, I had seen Kung Fu with David Carradine back in the 70s. He had a flute and he walked from town to town. I didn't know if I wanted to do that. And then I answered the phone and it was California State Prison for Men up in Lancaster, California. Kusla, can you come up and be a volunteer? I got a lot of Buddhists up here. I'm the Catholic chaplain and I don't know what to say to them. You know what I said? I said, you guys got Buddhists in prison? Man, every book I read didn't lead me to believe we went to prison. We had kindness, compassion, and wisdom. But we also end up in prison. So for a whole year, I was a volunteer up in state prison talking to these guys. These guys killed people, and they were just terrible people. And yet, each one of them was suffering. 
And the message I brought to that prison was important for them to hear. I remember one of the most interesting parts of it was they said, Kusla, can you bring us some incense? We'd like to meditate with incense. I said, hey, no problem. I brought up 10,000 sticks of incense. And within two weeks, they were gone. And I said, you guys can't be meditating this much. Where's the incense? Oh, we sold it. Underground economy. I'm the supplier. I said, no more incense. I didn't come up here to make you guys, you know, sellers. I came up here to give you guys some freedom. Then for five years, I was a volunteer at Central Juvenile Hall, downtown Los Angeles, talking to young people about how difficult it is to be young, how difficult it is to be a human being. Wow, what an interesting experience that was. One of the girls there, I said to her, what do you miss most about being in Juvenile Hall? Do you miss your family? Do you miss your your friends? She said, no. No, the thing I miss most is carbonation. We can't have sodas here. So it's just like, you know, yeah, I guess we all miss things, you know, when we go to Juvenile Hall. Then I became a, a, a chaplain at UCLA. And I'm, I've been there six, seven years now. And we have a Buddhist club that meets every Tuesday in the Catholic Center. We have an on-campus identity now that it's okay to be Buddhist. And we have a club and we have actually events together. The, the Buddhist club at USC, the Buddhist club at Irvine, and the Buddhist club at Riverside get together with the Buddhist club at UCLA. They call it SCUBA, Southern California University Buddhist Associations. And they have like, you know, barbecues. Most of it's, you know, tofu though, but they have barbecues. And they have uh, bowling events where they all get together and have teams. The Buddhist clubs will bowl against each other, see who wins. But if you're a Buddhist, there's no competition, you know. You're just doing it because you love each other. Okay, cool. Have I learned a lot? Yes, I learned a lot. Then the medical center, UCLA, said, Kusla, would you come and talk to the chaplains about Buddhist patient care and end-of-life issues because we get some Buddhists in here and none of our chaplains are Buddhist and they don't know what to say to the Buddhists. And I said, okay, well, I'm on campus. I'd be happy to try. And I went and gave some presentations and it seemed to be pretty well received. And then I was invited to go to the City of Hope one time and, and give a presentation to some other chaplains. And I went there and had lunch. And then this, the chaplain from the hospital comes over to me and says, Kusla, there's, there's a woman here. She's 24 years old. And she's terminal. She'll be dead in a couple months. And she just found out about Buddhism and has some questions. Would you be willing to go talk to her just a little bit? Well, I was in my presentation state of mind, just like I am now, sort of big and talking loud and, you know. And I said, yeah, I've got some things I can tell her about Buddhism. And I walked across the campus of City of Hope with this chaplain. And I went into this room, and she was in there with her mother. Her mother had a bed in the corner. And when I walked into the room, it took my breath away. <sighs> and, and what took my breath away was the fact that there was no past or future in this room, that I was walking into a present moment. This woman was going to be dead in just a couple months. So there was nothing to talk about. Well, what are you going to do when you grow up? What kind of career do you want? How many children would you like to have? And there was no reason to talk about the past either. The most important part of her life was right now. And you know what? I had nothing to say. Because most of the stuff I talk about is past and future. Well, when I got my balance back... I said, how can I help you? What do you need to hear? And she started to ask me some questions. And I started to give her some answers. And we had a unique relationship for those few hours that we were together. Because I had to be there right with her. And I had to feel her pain and sadness and hope for a good death. And I couldn't close my heart I couldn't say it was just a job. I couldn't say it was just knowledge that was in my head. I had to be with her in that present moment and not run away. And what a powerful experience that was for me. And, and then, for the last seven years, I've been a police chaplain in Garden Grove, just down the road a bit. And I do ride-alongs with these police officers. And I've got a bulletproof vest, and I have a hat that says chaplain. 
and we go into people's houses and just, you know, domestic disputes and there's robberies and there's a car chase occasionally, gang violence, shots fired. So since I've been a Buddhist starting in 1980 and since I've been ordained, my life has changed dramatically. And, and all I wanted to do was find a religion. That's all I wanted to do. And then the religion found me. Did that answer your question? Yeah. How did you become ordained and what do you need to become ordained? Okay. Are you thinking about becoming a nun? No. Okay. Well, at our center it works like this. Uh, you have to be a Buddhist for at least one year. And then you need to be a postulant, someone who's thinking about ordination for one year. And then you have to be a novice monk or nun for two years. And then you have to be a fully ordained monk or nun for five years before you're given permission to leave or teach or acquire students yourself. Pardon? I do. In fact, part of my teaching is so much fun. I've done two classes at Loyola Marymount University in the extension class department. And I taught the Eightfold Path, and I taught something called Everyday Buddhism. And the Everyday Buddhism class I taught at Loyola Marymount University is online because I recorded it. And you can, if you want, if you're curious about how I talk to in that way, you can just download those MP3 files and listen. So I do teach now. Yeah, it's cool. I feel like a professor. Yeah. No, my real name is Carl. Okay, how did I get the name Kusla? It happened when I became an official Buddhist. There's a there's a ceremony, and you take the five precepts. The five precepts are: I will practice not to kill. I will practice not to steal. I will practice not to indulge in sexual misconduct. I will practice not to lie. I will practice not to consume intoxicants. Those are the five precepts of a Buddhist. I then took the three refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha as a world teacher. I take refuge in, refuge in his teachings as a way to find my freedom, my perfection. And I take refuge in the monks and nuns who practice Buddhism as guides to help me achieve my liberation. And then I was given a Buddhist name. And my Buddhist name is Kusla, and Kusla means skillful. And, and I was so proud because I knew my teacher recognized the fact that I was skillful, and that's why he gave me the name. And he said, oh, Kusla, you are so deluded. I gave you that name because you're so unskillful. <laughs> and, and every time somebody says your name, it's a reminder of what direction you need to go in. <laughs> I said, ah, thank you. Thank you for the, <laughs> thank you for the teaching. You know. Now, why, why are names important? Names allow us to be something different than we are. What do, what do actors oftentimes do? They take on a new name so they can be that person. You will all be able to take on a new name as well. Pretty soon, most of you will become Mr. or Mrs., you know? And a lot of women now are putting their own last name in there. But, but you'll become Mrs. Smith. Mrs. Smith is different than Jane. Because Jane had a certain amount of independence and less duties. Now Mrs. Smith has duties, as does Mr. Smith, according to Buddhism. Your next name, after being Mrs. Smith for a while, will be Mom. And what does Mom allow you to do? It allows you to achieve most of your goals in raising a young human being. And it is so hard to be a mom. You have, you're required to lose sleep, always think about the kid first. When you were Jane, you always thought of yourself first. When you were Mrs., you thought about your husband and yourself. But now that you're mom, there's one focus, and that's the kid. And when you get really good at being mom, then you get another name, Grandma. <laughs> cool. You know? And grandmas are always the best because they get to leave. They just come and visit. They're really happy, and then they go. You know, It's so neat. So names help us evolve. Names help us go in to the next place we need to go as a human being. And that's why we have names in Buddhism, to help us be somebody better, usually, than we were before. Did that? 
get to achieve or like do yeah. the stuff you should be doing, but then would you be born as like a higher level or something because you were killed? Or okay. Sort of like maybe some of the soldiers in Iraq. When they get killed because they're, they're, they're dying in service to the country, do they get a heaven reward? Or do they go to hell? Or do they just come back as a human being? Well, let me tell you how it works in Buddhism. And I'm going to get back to you. I, I didn't forget. Uh, it works this way. How much time do we have? Five minutes. Wow. Okay. Well, I've got to get ready for my next performance. Uh, uh, you are born in Buddhism because of what you think, what you say, and what you do. It's the karma. Karma is reborn. This is a gift for you. I'll explain what it is. And, um, and so if you die with a good intention, that intention will be the first thought in the next lifetime. If you die and you really hate the person that's killing you, that hatred will be the first thought in the next lifetime. So can you die without hating the person? And if you saw 300, what did they do when they all died? They all thanked. You gave me a place to die, finally. I can now die in glory and have lunch in hell. I think that was one of the lines. It was a great line. So they, that's the warrior, you know? And so it sort of works like that. We have 31 heavens. We have 31 hells. Uh, so we have a lot of places to go, but the best place is to be a human being. And I've got a website, urbandharma.org. And Susie can write it down on the board for you later. Uh, but it's urbandharma.org. So if I didn't answer all your questions, please go there. Urban Dharma. D-H-A-R-M-A, Urban Dharma. If you like podcasts, I have 49 podcasts on iTunes. Go to iTunes and push and, and do Urban Dharma, and you'll find my podcasts. I have a couple videos now of interviews and stuff. And when I was on the Vibe TV show with Sinbad, playing my blues harmonica with the band, I have the video, and that's online. So please go and see that. There's also a whole bunch of free e-books on Buddhism you can download if you're curious about Buddhism and read those. And... Uh, and what I gave uh, Susie, I, I just had a conference last weekend up in Berkeley, and one is a CD of original Buddhist folk songs by Venerable Hung Shur. And the CD will be coming out in the next couple months, but he gave me a demo copy. And these are songs he wrote and recorded in Fantasy Studios up in San Francisco, and he found some other people to play dulcimer, hammer dulcimer, mandolin, guitar, and banjo, and they're great songs. And then on the, on the flip side is another CD. It was a presentation given at the conference called The Vegan Monologues. And it was about how to be, uh, about the trials and tribulations of being a vegan. And it's a wonderful story. And the guy that tells the story became a vegan because when he was in high school, he fell in love with two hippie girls and wanted them to be his. And they were both vegetarian. So he made the supreme sacrifice to be a vegetarian, to get their attention, and they already had boyfriends. But this, I know, it's a sad story, but it's a fun one to listen to. Yes. I can. I brought it with me. And, uh, and so this is just like a little, uh, this is like a melody of, uh, of a little happy music and a little blues music. And I, I put them both together, and we'll see if this thing works, okay?
Thanks for being a good audience. I feel good now. And I hope your day is filled with less suffering and more happiness. Well, that's it. That was my talk at Northwoods High School in Irvine, California. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts, you can listen to them on iTunes, do a search for Urban Dharma, or my website, dharmatalks.info, dharmatalks.info. If you'd like to download some free ebooks on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info, that's buddhabooks.info. And if you'd like to email me, my email address is kusala at urbandharma.org. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.